Welcome to your Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative comes from the book of Mark, chapter 12, verse 38, through chapter 13, verse 13. Here's a brief commentary to help shed some light on some of the things we'll be reading here in the New Testament. Well, Jesus again exposed the religious leaders' impure motives. The teachers received no pay. So they depended on the hospitality extended by devout Jews. Some of them used this custom to exploit people, cheating the poor out of everything they had and taking advantage of the rich. Through their pious actions, they hoped to gain status, recognition, and respect. Now Jesus warned against trying to make a good impression. These teachers of religious law were religious hypocrites who really had no love for God, no devotion to the Lord. True followers of Christ are not distinguished by showing spirituality. Reading the Bible, praying in public, or following church rituals can be phony if the motive for doing them is to be noticed or to receive honor. Let your actions be consistent with your beliefs. Live for Christ even when no one is looking. There were several boxes in the temple where money could be placed. Some were for collecting the temple tax from Jewish males. Uh, the others were for free will offerings. This particular collection box that Jesus refers to here in the scripture today was probably in the court of the women. Now we'll read that this widow gave all she had to live on, in contrast to the way most people handle their money. When we consider giving a certain percentage of our income a great accomplishment, we resemble those who gave a tiny part of their surplus, quoting Jesus there. Uh, Here, Jesus was admiring generous and sacrificial giving. As believers, we should consider increasing our giving, whether uh, of money, time, or talents, to a point beyond convenience or calculation. Well, about 15 years before Jesus was born, that's 20 B.C., Herod the Great began to remodel and rebuild the temple, which had stood for nearly 500 years since uh, the days of Ezra. Herod made the temple one of the most beautiful buildings in Jerusalem not to honor God, but to appease the Jews whom he ruled. The magnificent building project was not completely finished until the year A.D. 64. Jesus' prophecy that not one stone would be left on another was fulfilled in A.D. 70, when the Romans completely destroyed the temple and the entire city of Jerusalem. Now the disciples wanted to know when the temple would be destroyed. Jesus gave them a prophetic picture of that time including events leading up to it. He also talked about future events connected with his return to earth to judge all people. Jesus predicted both near and distant events without putting them in chronological order. Some of the disciples lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus warned his followers about the future so that they could learn how to live in the present. And then we'll read here today in the New Testament where Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives overlooking the city. The Mount of Olives rises above Jerusalem to the east. From its slopes, a person can look down into the city and see the temple. Zechariah chapter 14 predicts that the Messiah will stand on this very mountain when he returns to set up his eternal kingdom. To believe in Jesus and endure to the end will take perseverance because our faith will be challenged and opposed. Severe trials will sift true Christians from fair-weather believers. Enduring to the end does not earn salvation for us, but marks us as already saved. The assurance of our salvation will keep us strong in times of persecution. 
All right, let's begin our reading today here in the New Testament. March 6th, the New Testament, Mark chapter 12, verse 38, through chapter 13, verse 13. Jesus also taught, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets, yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions, for they gave a tiny part of their surplus. But she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, look at these magnificent buildings. Look at the impressive stones in the walls. Jesus replied, Yes, look at these great buildings, but they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, across the valley from the temple. Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and asked him, Tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am the Messiah. They will deceive many and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world, as well as famines. But this is only the first of the birth pains, with more to come. When these things begin to happen, watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You will stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all nations. But when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you who will be speaking, but the Holy Spirit. A brother will betray his brother to death. A father will betray his own child and children will rebel against their parents and cause them to be killed. And everyone will hate you because you are my followers, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Psalm 49, verses 1 through 20. The futility of worldliness, riches, pride, fame, resounds from this psalm. Comparable in form to the book of Ecclesiastes, this psalm is one of the few written more to instruct than to praise God. Now, in the slave market of the ancient world, a slave had to be redeemed. In other words, someone had to pay the price in order to go free. In Mark chapter 10, Ephesians 1 and Hebrews 9, we learn that Jesus paid such a price so that we could be set free from slavery to sin in order to begin a new life with Him. See, there's no way for a person to buy eternal life with God. Only God can redeem a soul. 
So don't count on wealth and physical comforts to keep you happy because you will never have enough wealth to keep from dying. The rich and poor have one similarity. When they die, they leave all they own here on earth. At the moment of death, and by the way, all of us uh, will face that moment, both rich and poor are naked and empty-handed before God. The only riches we have at that time are those we've already invested in our eternal heritage. At the time of death, each of us will wish we had invested less on earth, where we must leave it, and more in heaven, where we will retain it forever. To have treasure in heaven, we must place our faith in God, pledge ourselves to obey Him, and utilize our resources for the good of His kingdom. Now this is a good time to check up on your investments and see where you have invested the most. Then do whatever it takes to place your investments where they really count. Psalm 49, verses 1-20 through 20. For the choir director, a psalm of the descendants of Korah. Listen to this, all you people. Pay attention, everyone in the world. High and low, rich and poor, listen. For my words are wise, and my thoughts are filled with insight. I listen carefully to many proverbs, and solve riddles with inspiration from a harp. Why should I fear when trouble comes, when enemies surround me? They trust in their wealth and boast of great riches. Yet they cannot redeem themselves from death by paying a ransom to God. Redemption does not come so easily, for no one can ever pay enough to live forever and never see the grave. Those who are wise must finally die, just like the foolish and senseless, leaving all their wealth behind. The grave is their eternal home, where they will stay forever. They may name their estates after themselves, but their fame will not last. They will die just like animals. This is the fate of fools, though they are remembered as being wise. Interlude Like sheep, they are led to the grave, where death will be their shepherd. In the morning the godly will rule over them. Their bodies will rot in the grave far from their grand estates. But as for me, God will redeem my life. He will snatch me from the power of the grave. Interlude So don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich and their homes become ever more splendid. For when they die, they take nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave. In this life they consider themselves fortunate and are applauded for their success. But they will die, like all before them, and never again see the light of day. People who boast of their wealth don't understand. They will die just like the animals. Proverbs chapter 10, verses 27 and 28. Fear of the Lord lengthens one's life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. The hopes of the godly result in happiness, but the expectations of the wicked come to nothing. Good morning, Tyler Pack here with Transformation Radio, reminding you Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anyone you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrence Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslifeschange.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio. So we're starting a new series in the book of Acts. 
We'll be taking much of the year to go through this book, and I'm pretty, pretty excited to do so. So for those of you that don't know, we'll, uh, we'll give some background information as to what this book is, the context and whatnot. So for those of you who don't know, Acts is found in the Bible um, right after the Gospel of John um, in the New Testament. And Acts is written by Luke. And in Colossians 4.14, Luke is described as a physician. So most scholarly types of folks um, believe that Dr. Luke wrote the book of Acts somewhere around the year 70 A.D. And so if we think about this, man, I'm going to be stepping on this cord this whole time. Let me move that over. There we go. So 70 A.D. So this would have been 30 to 40 years um, after Jesus was crucified and he resurrected. So this just gives us an idea of, of what, what the time frame is. Now it seems that Luke's purpose, so why did, why did Luke write the Gospel of Luke? Why did Luke write Acts? Well, it seems that Acts in particular um, was written to account for how the Gospel spread. How did this message of Jesus go from just being in one place to expanding? What was going on that made this, this particular phenomenon happen? And so we see that speeches and sermons actually make up the majority of this large book. And so that kind of gives us an idea. But I think before we really jump in, this, uh, this sermon obviously right up front, the first um, sermon of the series, the first chapter in the book, we notice some things right off the bat. And so even in our first verse, Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so both the book of Luke and Acts are dedicated to this guy named Theophilus, who many smart people believe funded the work of these two books. That's what most people believe. So Luke mentions that in his first book, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And so obviously Luke is referring to the Gospel of Luke when he's saying, in the first book. And so what's happening here is the church is about ready to explode. The church is beginning in the book of Acts. God's initiated something new. Jesus has come and accomplished His mission. The Holy Spirit is being promised. Something happened. Things have changed for mankind. The Christ has come. And so this is where we find ourselves. Tim Keller preaches regarding this. He says, first of all, the essence of Christianity is about something Jesus has already begun to do. Something that Jesus has already done. He's completed. Something that happened in Luke's first book. The reason that's so important is Christianity is about what Jesus has done, not about what you have done. So Jesus, we're hearing all this language and it it appears that Jesus has done something pretty important. And so what did He do? Well, verse 3 says, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering, by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So He presented Himself after He'd suffered. This is interesting. and Because he, He's now alive. Resurrection. Luke's talking about Jesus presenting Himself after the crucifixion, after the death. He was and is alive. So this is... Acts is, in a sense, a historical book. Luke is presenting history. He's investigating the truth. And he's saying, Jesus was alive. We found Him alive. 
So Luke's investigating all this and he reports. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. Another study Bible writes, Christ paid the penalty for sin on the cross. His resurrection proves the sacrifice is complete and God's wrath is satisfied. There's no longer condemnation for those in Christ. Interesting, because Luke is being paid to write this historical book about what happened and he's not presenting Jesus as merely an idea. He's not presenting Jesus as just another good teacher or just another good philosopher or just another good man. He's doing more than that because he's saying that Jesus resurrected. So Jesus isn't just another teacher. Jesus is God. Jesus resurrects and He's with His disciples and many other people for 40 days. And what's He telling them? What's He telling them? Well, at the end of verse 3, he says, it says, speaking about the kingdom of God. So he, he comes back, He resurrects. Fantastic. This is, we've never heard of anything like this. We've never experienced anything like this. This is 30 years after it happens. So what this means is you could have gone out and you could have asked folks, did you see this? Did this happen? You couldn't have made this up in such a short period of time because the people that saw it were alive. And He's saying He resurrected. And He's talking about the kingdom of God. What, what is this? What is this kingdom of God? Well, a guy named George Eldon Ladd, he explains that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, the kingdom of God, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, first of all, what we're talking about is we're talking about God's reign. We're talking about God's rule over the world, over all creation. That, that what we see around us, that if God is creator, that this is all of His. That He owns this stuff. That we are in His kingdom. God is is in sovereign control. This is all God's. And and, and what we've been seeing and what Luke's telling us in the Gospels even is, is that God is good. That God is good. But we are in, as Ladd calls it, the already, not yet. What does he mean by that? Well, Jesus has already... Alright, so already not yet. Jesus has already accomplished the requirements for us to be able to know God and to be in right relationship with God. But, until Jesus comes back, we are not yet in Christ's perfect kingdom. So that's how we see this already not yet. And why this is important is because it helps us understand and make sense of why there's still suffering and pain, and injustice. Why are all these things, why do they still exist if Jesus has come? I read elsewhere, it said God's kingdom has a dual dimension. A dual dimension. Jesus initiated the kingdom on earth, and wherever God's will is carried out, that kingdom is in that sense God's reality. It's actually happening. The kingdom, however, has not been fully manifested in Jesus' day, nor has it in ours. We do not yet live in a world where God's will is a complete reality. We experience a tension whereby we experience God's law, God's will, God's um, kingdom in our lives and communities, yet not not yet in its full realization. We still see many instances of unbelief, right? We see many instances of, of, of brokenness. 
We see manifestations of sin that tell us God's will is not yet fully expressed. And what happens with some of us is many believers neglect to focus on the present reality of God's kingdom. And so, and so if that's the case, then their concern centers on a future reality of getting to heaven. This focus can easily, what it can do is it can sever the relationship between the kingdom, or sorry, between the Christian life here and now. So we're always looking ahead to something later. And we're not living out our Christian life here and now. Here and now. Jesus prayed. He said, he, he prayed, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? You see that in Matthew. Through Jesus, God's reign, God's rule and power is avail- available to us today. Today. Not just in some distant future far away. So the present reality of the kingdom of God should prompt us to examine our lives and ask what areas we've not yet surrendered to God's rule. So when we're talking about the kingdom of God, that's how we make it practical. What areas of my life have I not submitted to King Jesus' rule and reign? So as you reflect right now on your day, on your evening, do you see times when you've responded in anger, you've acted in a way that was unkind or unhealthy? Did you act pridefully when you could have acted in humility? Could you have served someone instead of being served? Did you treat someone in a way that didn't represent Jesus? This all has to do with the kingdom of God. On a larger level, the notion of God's kingdom should lead us. This is what leads us to examine our neighborhoods and the global community and ask what's happening in both of those that lies outside of God's desire. Where are children being neglected and abandoned? Where are people not being treated with dignity and honor they deserve as God's image bearers? Who's been pushed to the outskirts of society and treated as the other? As we anticipate the time when all things will be made fully new, we can engage. We can engage in the active participation of God's kingdom here and now. Because Revelation 21 says everything's going to be made new. But until then, we can engage in God's kingdom here and now. As we surrender more of ourselves to the reign of God, our experience of that present kingdom will be richer. God, I'm not in control. You're in control. I give myself to you. I surrender myself to you. When we begin to do that in our lives, we will experience His kingdom in our midst in a more rich way as we actively live out the hope of Jesus in hopeless places, we'll extend the kingdom further. Look around you. Look, I mean, think about the neighborhood that we're in. Think about the places that you find yourselves. We're being commissioned to live out our faith in what God has done where we are. As we bring healing to places in the name of Jesus, we will bring the kingdom of God to life now. So may we daily live Jesus' prayer that God's will be done. God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here, now. Not just a future reality. But now. But now. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom of God.
the kingdom of God. There will be a time where all will be made right. There will be a time, but if it's not today, we praise God that Jesus has made a way for us to know God. Jesus has made a way for us to know God. And we work as the local church to be embassies of God's glory here and now. Right here. Wherever you are. Wherever we are. And so the first big, big idea that we're presenting today is we're going to look at the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father. So Acts 1, 6 and 7. We heard Rob read it. It said, so when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And as I was reading, um, I thought it was interesting because I came across um, a sermon by James Montgomery Boyce, who was a, a really just fantastic preacher, theologian. And he said this, he, he, according to this verse, he was saying, this is basically what the disciples were asking. They were saying, Lord, we've waited a long time. We've waited through three long years of your ministry. You obviously considered those three years to be important, but we're not sure that they were important as you said they were. We wish you'd gotten the kingdom going a lot sooner, but we were patient because after all, you are the Lord and we're only disciples. And of course, we went through that whole nasty business of the crucifixion when you were rejected and killed. Then we experienced the resurrection. And we were sure that, that you had your purpose in that too. But enough is enough. Let's get down to the thing that really matters. Are you at this time, now, at last, after all, this waiting on our part, going to restore the kingdom? Jesus answered, It's not your business to know when I'm going to set up my kingdom. We see in this instance a misunderstanding that the disciples, the men that had been with Jesus for years, three years, there was a misunderstanding as to what Jesus was trying to do. Because Boyce, Boyce, the guy that I just quoted, he says that the people, even the disciples, were looking for a different kingdom than what Jesus was bringing. And we do this too. Because see, what they were doing is they were looking for a political kingdom. They were looking for an ethnically restricted kingdom. They were looking for a geographically restricted kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom that would benefit certain people and not other people. They had a specific idea in mind. And God is saying, you don't understand my will. You don't understand. It's not for you to ask. In this sense, it should lead us to humility to pray, God... I have plans and dreams and, and desires, but God, help, help me to pursue your will and not mine. Help me to pursue your kingdom and not my kingdom. It's interesting in 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. It says, This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now what that text is saying, it's not saying that all will be saved. But what it is saying is that in God's goodness, in God's redemptive plan, with the full unity of the Trinity, God willed it that by Jesus' life and sacrifice, all people would have a way to know God. See, the people of Jesus' day wanted a redemption. They wanted redemption, but only for certain people. They wanted God's kingdom to look like the kingdoms of this world. To be initiated by force. 
and to rule with power, to rule through might. But that would have only benefited certain people for a certain period of time. And it would have looked like coercion. It would have looked like manipulation. But what's interesting is that Jesus came and He led through weakness. God's redemptive plan, as we saw in in Timothy there, is that God's redemptive plan is for all people, not just for certain people. That if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we're welcome into God's family and we're invited into God's mission. Joyfully witnessing Christ and awaiting the time when He returns. And so, what we know and what, what... Luke is giving us just a glimpse at is that we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That Jesus is the fulfillment of all the old stories. All of our current stories point to Him. We're looking for a hero, for someone good, and it's Christ. It's Christ. So we see the promise of the Father. Secondly, it's interesting because we we hear about the, the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit. So the first part of of verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then even if we look back a little bit before that, in verses 4 and 5, Luke writes, And while staying with, with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what he's referring to, Most of you probably know this, but John the Baptist was a prophet. He baptized people. And I read somewhere that that his purpose, John the Baptist's purpose, was to awaken the Jewish people to the reality of the coming Messiah, Jesus. John's baptism was was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 1.4 says. And so, what we know is that the water served as a, a superficial sign of the cleansing for those expecting this true internal washing to come. True salvation to come. That would, that would happen through Jesus Christ. And so a little sidebar. I wanted, to, I wanted to extend the invitation. And this is exciting. Is that if you're a new believer. Or if, or if you've been a believer for some time. And you've never been baptized. Our church rejoices in this. And we take it seriously. Because we think it's, it's awesome. And so we would encourage you to be baptized. And. Faith Life Study Bible says, as an act of proclamation, baptism signifies a person's testimony to his or her union with Christ, especially through identification with his death, burial, and resurrection. Here's the big idea about baptism baptism displays that through the power of the indwelling Christ, believers have died to their old selves and are now alive through him to live in him, to be, to be in union with Jesus. So baptism doesn't save you. But as you'll see in Acts, baptism was really important. We'll we'll talk about, I mean, we'll see it next week as we look at chapter 2. And so our church is having a baptism service next week. Um, So if you want to be baptized, if you've never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized as a a young child and, and it wasn't really a conscious profession of faith, I would encourage you to be baptized. And so we don't have a way to do it here yet, but... But anyone who wants to be baptized from our congregation, we're being welcomed to do so at the 1145 service in Short North next week. And so we'll have them here in the future, but if you want to be baptized, if as we're talking about this, something stirs in you, um, talk with me after, after the gathering, and we would love to serve you in that way. 
So back to the text. But we're talking about baptism, so throw it in there. So next week. We're promised the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And, and so last week and for the past four weeks, we've been, we've been hearing a lot about the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. But we're promised this empowerment. But, but the question I want to ask is for what? For what? What's the primary role of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian? In the life of a Christian. But we see it, and it's our last point. The church's witness of Jesus. So let's read the whole, the whole of verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then what? And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What I want you to see, friends, is that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can be witnesses of Jesus. So, we've been talking for a month. We put on our new nature. We walk by the Spirit. We put on the character of Jesus. Why? To be witnesses of Jesus for the glory of God. To be witnesses of Jesus for the glory of God. Faith Life writes, The new covenant promises the Spirit's unique work of internal transformation which allows God's people to minister on His behalf. We're invited to minister God's gospel in His behalf. The church needs to testify about Christ to proclaim the reality of His death and resurrection as well as His kingdom and His lordship. We are empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus. That's the goal. That's the big picture. And what's cool is is we get to be invited into God's story. His promise of redemption. We're empowered to live out our mission by the Holy Spirit. And our mission is to be be witnesses of the risen Christ. These these people in this text had seen Jesus resurrect and ascend back to heaven. And and they're to be witnesses of this message. That there's hope for sinners. That we can be changed by the gospel. We're to proclaim the kingdom of God where all people can know God because of the cross. And it happens as a result of God's grace. We don't deserve what God promised. We don't deserve the Holy Spirit's help. We don't deserve Jesus' sacrifice. But we're loved because of grace. We're loved because of grace. And so we see the Holy Spirit is at work all throughout Acts. But... The Holy Spirit is not the subject of Acts. Jesus is. Jesus is. We're empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. That's the big idea. And so the disciples see Jesus ascend, go to heaven, right? Crazy. Really cool. They go back to Jerusalem. Luke's taking record of, of, of everyone who's there, and they do what? Last verse in our text today. It says this. Verse 14. All these with one accord were, de- were devoting themselves to prayer. I love this. They begin to pray. They begin to pray. If you saw Jesus die, you'd spent three years when you saw him die. You saw him ascend. You spent 40 days with him in between. Your faith would be heightened. You realize you're dependent upon God, not what you can do. And I love that their response to all this is they just began to pray. 
The main activity in the upper room, what we hear about a lot in church, was prayer. It was prayer. They were truly dependent upon God, not their flesh. They were truly dependent upon God, not what they could manufacture. And what's, what all of our struggle and our strife, just the mundaneness of life, your difficulties, it's pointing you to your need. You need God. You cannot rest in your flesh, in your doing, in what you can produce. We are to be utterly dependent upon God because God is our hope. Jesus is our hope. Christ is our joy. We're invited to pursue Christ because that's what we're made for. These guys had just experienced all that and their first response was prayer. They began to pray. And so the big idea, and I'm excited to be able to walk all, all through Acts together, but the big idea here, Christ is the hope of the world, but He's the hope of the church. And we're going to see the church begin. And we're going to see how crazy, intense uh, persecution, all, new followers, all this cool stuff, but, but it all happens because of Christ. And, and it all happens in worship to Christ. So apart from Jesus, no lasting change. Be more specific. Without Christ, no lasting change will come to this place, to this neighborhood. I mean, we could feed people, we could clothe people, we could help people get jobs, we could be advocates for the poor and the lowly, and we will do those things. But apart from Christ, there will be no lasting change. Christ is our primary joy. He is who we worship. So let's leave with this thought. Almost done. But, but I think this is cool. So verse 8, it's a bummer that we can only stay, because we could, we could unpack just even verse 8. Um, for, for, I mean, there could be multitudes of sermons. But if you read verse 8, it says, but you receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in many ways, this is the theme of Acts. This is a thematic verse. But think about that into the ends of the earth. I want you to think about this. We are the ends of the earth. You, us, we're the ends of the earth. The text is referring to us right here. The gospel spread from Jerusalem. And we're here in Columbus, Ohio, 2,000 years later. And we're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We are the ends of the earth. It's beautiful because God fulfills His promises. He's faithful. We looked at, you know, this is all part of God's redemptive plan. God willed this to happen and we're here. I just want us to hear that and rest in that. God is faithful. The Holy Spirit, you know, the Holy Spirit's empowering the church and He's done so for 2,000 years through all our mistakes, through all our missteps, through all of our struggles. His message has gone forth. People have been changed and transformed. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're witnesses of Christ and His kingdom here and now. Here and now. So theologian Justin Holcomb, he writes, the mission of God, because that's, that's what this theme really is, the mission of God. The mission of God is His work to reconcile the world to Himself through Jesus Christ by lavishly offering grace to sinners and sufferers. 
the primary task, hear this, the primary task of the people of God, it's you and me, is to bear witness to His great deeds. What does that mean? That means we are to bear witness not of how great we are, not of how fantastic you think you are or I think I am. Our primary task is to bear witness to Jesus, Jesus' great deeds. The gospel says, yeah, I'm a sinner too. I struggle too, but you know, because of Christ, I have hope. Because of Christ, you can have hope. We're to bear witness of his great deeds. So as we close, how are you living out your identity as a witness or a missionary of Jesus? We're being we're not just we're not just welcomed into something, we are, but we're called to something when it comes to Christianity. Right? We're welcomed in with the gospel, we're welcomed into the family of God, but it can't stop there. We're also called to something. And that's that's God's mission. So how are you living that out? How is the Holy Spirit working in your life to bring glory to God? Just begin to ask yourself that. And just reflect on this statement by Holcomb. He says, broadly speaking, Christian theology teaches that the Father orchestrates salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. And the Spirit applies salvation. The Trinity's at work, friends. It's cool. Be encouraged. We see the Trinity at work throughout history, and we see the Trinity at work within our own personal life. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You that we can rest in Your good news. Thank You that You invite us into Your story, into Your mission. Jesus, I just pray that we would... It's difficult. This text um, is heavy because when we talk about the mission of God, I think what my proclivity is is let's try to start something. Let's try to hype everybody up. Let's start a ministry. Let's um, get everybody signed up and go do something. And God, I just pray that that's all good, but I pray that we'd start with, Lord, we want to love you. We want to serve. We want to know you. You welcome us in, and you're calling us to live this thing out in our normal, everyday life. What does it look like to live on mission tonight at whatever Super Bowl party you're going to be at? What does it mean to live on mission tomorrow when you go to your job? What does it mean to live on mission when you're in community group this week? What does it mean to live on mission when somebody flips you off when you're driving home? What does it mean to live on mission when you interact with people that aren't believers and that present you with opportunities to sin? What What does it mean to live on mission when you're all alone and temptation comes, and you have an opportunity to do something, and no one would know about it, but you know in your heart's wrong. What does it mean to live on mission? And I pray that, Jesus, your gospel would go so deep in our hearts that we would truly embrace our identity as sons and daughters, and that because of that, we would live out that identity in the world and in our neighborhood, and in our work, and with our friends. So Jesus, as we sing, as we go on through the rest of this gathering, I pray that we be encouraged that you do love us, that you are welcoming us to yourself.
Amen. Amen. And that does it for today's podcast. Tune in tomorrow for another edition of Transformation Radio.